the series we've been working on through, uh, the, through uh, looking toward the future and the prophecies, the promises that God has made that he will fulfill in the future and that we're preparing for, uh, that Pastor Dave has been leading us through. And I want us to, to kind of take a step back and to again consider what it means to live in this time between Jesus' resurrection and when he'll return. I want us to think about the fact that that we can all be comforted that there is a promise for us that God has given us that he will one day fulfill. He'll bring to complete fulfillment when Jesus returns. That that can give us comfort. We we can all have comfort in knowing that in the midst of our daily uh, struggles and effort and work here in this earth, that there is still yet an end to the story to come. God's still working in our lives and our circumstances, and and he's still working all things toward the future of the promises that he has yet to fulfill for us. If you're an avid reader, it would almost be that that we would consider we're somewhere beyond the first chapter, but not yet quite to the the final chapter as we read through the book together. You may may remember that the last time we were together on Mother's Day, we had the chance to, to kind of come alongside Israel's story, right? We, we came alongside Israel's uh, journey through the wilderness as recorded for us in Deuteronomy. We were, were reminded that, that Moses was meeting with Israel on the plains of Moab before they crossed over the Jordan River into the Promised Land. And, and he, was, he was desiring to give them this encouragement. He was preaching a sermon, in a sense, to the, to the whole nation of Israel and really trying to encourage them to remember God as they cross over into the promised land. That, that all that they had done in the wilderness was not for naught, but that he used that time to shape them, to mold them, to form them into his people. We were reminded that we discussed that, that God has a plan for our time in the wilderness. That, that God provides for us in the wilderness. That, that he leads us out of the wilderness and into that place that he has promised for us. In other words, God uses the circumstances of our our daily lives to shape us, to to mold us, to to teach us to learn to trust him and to look like him and to live like him more and more. This is a a life of faith that we live out, uh, not just in the wilderness, but also in this promised land. He's preparing us for eternity with him. What I, want, uh, what I think then would be helpful for us this morning as we, as we kind of go back to that place, as we kind of go back and, and stand alongside Israel as Moses is preaching this sermon, is that we would consider that, that our job is not yet done, that even in the wilderness, God has a responsibility for his people. He's given you and I a responsibility, a role to play, an opportunity to be, to be active, See, the, the wilderness is not a place where we just kind of sit back quietly and we allow the shepherd to lead us through. We walk in faith. But part of that walking in faith is also a, a, an active way of pouring out our faith. We're not meant to, to merely survive this world, but actually invest in the other people we come across in this world. And so the invitation to you and to me is to have an active faith as, as he leads us through this world. See, I think Father's Day is a great example of this. Would you agree? Father's Day is meant to be a time where we think about the fathers in our lives. And I get it, we haven't all had the best experience with our earthly fathers. In fact, I know that for many of us, this is a place where we come before the Lord in prayer. And we surrender our hearts before him, wondering what it means to have a loving, heavenly father. But Father's Day is a day where we're reminded that God has given fathers a unique influence on the next generation. 
he, he's given them a unique opportunity. And sadly, uh, because of sin, we have learned that some fathers have not used that influence well. But God's intent is that fathers would use that influence in the lives of their children to pass on the faith to the next generation. Consider the story of, of Brett Favre. Brett Favre was a, an NFL quarterback. He, he played in the, in the NFL for 20 years. He played with the Green Bay Packers for most of his career. Brett uh, Favre was, he was the first NFL quarterback to pass for over 500 touchdowns, to throw for over 70,000 yards, to make over 6,000 completions, and to pass, uh, to make attempts over 10,000 times. He set many records before his retirement. Now, if you're not a football fanatic, that's okay. I just want us to catch the, the vision that, that Brett Favre was this excellent quarterback. He, he was one of, uh, one of the elite in his time. I want you to consider this, though. Upon his retirement, he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, the NFL Hall of Fame. And they gave him a chance to share his story with the crowd that had gathered to celebrate him. And he shared a story of growing up with his father. You see, his father was his own football coach. So every morning he would get in the car and go to school with his dad. And in the evening he would ride home with his dad because his dad would coach the football team. So they would do practice and then get in the car and go home together. Well, towards the end of his high school career, he remembered uh, that well, he, he thinks he remembered. He probably wasn't playing the greatest. But the reason why is because he remembers what happened next. He remembers sitting outside his dad's office, the coach's office, and he, and he waited for his dad to be done meeting with the other coaches. And he remembers overhearing his father say this to the, the other coaches. He remembers them saying, uh, he remembers his father saying, I can assure you one thing about my son. He will play better. He will redeem himself. I know my son. He has it in him. In the, the in the story that, that Brett Favre shared with the crowd that was gathered, he said, I won't ever forget those words. In fact, I, I've never forgotten them. All through my high school career, the, the remainder of my high school career, all through college, all through my professional career, those words drove me to give my very best. They, they, I spent my whole career trying to redeem my father's words, to, to make them true, to live, to make my father proud and to play to bring him pleasure. See, there's no doubt that a father has a natural influence on their children. And I, I mention that just because it's Father's Day. But the reality is, in the passage we're going to look at this morning, it's not just about fathers. In fact, it's not even just about mothers. I believe that the principle that this passage unpacks for us is for the church. It's for all of God's people. That, that we all have an influence on someone else. And because we have that influence, we have a responsibility to take the faith that's been given to us and impress it on the next. So I don't think it's just for fathers or, or mothers. It, it, in fact, I was talking with Chris Camaro uh, about a week and a half ago, and we had lunch together, and she was telling me all about her time in the Philippines. Chris is one of our missionaries that we sent out into the field last year, and, and she's currently home on furlough, about to head back out to the field in just uh, another month or so. And, and she was telling me all about what she did in the Philippines. And she's a teacher at a, a boarding school, a school that, that uh, they send uh, students to. And it's not necessarily only a Christian school that they get people of, of other faiths and other uh, walks of life that come to the school. And so she told me how she loved being a teacher. 
But what she loved about it even more was the opportunity that she felt God had given her to be a spiritual mother to one of the female students in the school. One of these young women came to her and, and had come to know the Lord and said, you know, Miss Chris, will you, will you help me grow in my faith? Will you help me learn how to walk with Jesus? And so Chris is very excited about this opportunity that when she goes back, she won't only be responsible for educating these children, but she has the opportunity to pass on her faith to a younger woman in, school, in the school. So I wonder, who, who are you thinking about this morning? Who, who do you have in mind? Take a minute, even now as I'm talking, think about who is it in your mind that as you walk with Jesus, Jesus has given you the impression to, to pass on your faith to. Take a moment to picture this person in your mind. Maybe even quietly say their name in the, in the quietness of your own heart. As we study the Bible this morning, I want you to keep this person's name in mind. I want you to picture them. I want you to think about them as we consider how God has really challenged his people to not hold this gift of faith that he's given them, this relationship with God through Jesus Christ to just themselves, but to actually pass it on to the next generation, to impress it upon their hearts. This morning, as we we pick up in Israel's wandering, I want you to consider how God is preparing you to not only live with him, but to to pass on that life to others. Let's turn in our Bibles to, to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We're going to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 11. It's on page 155 in your pew Bible. We're going to pick up in this, this passage where Israel's standing before Moses, and he's preaching this sermon with them. I want to read these words for us in Deuteronomy chapter 11, starting in verse 18. Hear the word of God. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. I wonder if you'll allow me a minute just to pray, to thank God for his word. Lord, we do thank you for this morning, for a chance to to sit, to slow down, to listen to your word. Lord, I pray that we would not just uh, hear the words come into our our heads, but that we would listen to the words at the depth of our hearts. That you would transform us, Lord, to be a people that are growing in our own faith, but also passing on to the next generation the faith which has been handed to us. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this word, that it is alive, that it is active in our hearts and our minds and our lives. Father, give us the courage to follow you this morning. We pray your word would convict us, would encourage us, would challenge us, would teach us. Lord, may we hear your words, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we start off in this passage of Deuteronomy 11, I wonder if you'll give me a moment just to to start at the end, to begin with the end in mind. I want to start in verse 24. You see, these words that God speaks through Moses in these four verses, they have a purpose and they have a goal. And so it's kind of good for us to begin with that goal, that end in mind. The directions that God gives his people in these verses, they have a desired outcome. 
See, Moses knows the Lord spoke through Moses, and, 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 and they know that, that God desires to work something out in his people, to shape them in a certain way. Verse 21 starts off with this purpose clause. That your days and the days of your children may be multiplied. See, the word that is a small word that we brush by very quickly, but let's not move by too quickly. It tells us that there is a purpose that God has for us, that that he's speaking to his people. He, He has this desired outcome for Israel, right? You see, I think some of us, we have this view of God that he's a rules kind of God, that, that God has this desire that we would be a people that follow his rules well. We, meet, we might see God as, as measuring his people against this, this spiritual uh, ruler that, that measures us based on our obedience. This past week, we, we talked about this in our soul care group. By the way, if you're not in a soul care group, I would really encourage you to consider how God might be inviting you to get involved in one. They're great opportunities to encourage you to, to trust Jesus more, to walk with him, to gather with other believers of Jesus here at, at Trinity and be encouraged and encourage one another to, to give back as well as you receive encouragement from them. We have a great time in our soul care group. And, and this past week, we talked a little bit about this. See, here's a question. When you think of God... Do you assume that you have to behave to win his approval or to earn his blessings in your life? Now, now I imagine when I ask that question, I'm going to see heads nodding like this. No, we don't believe that. But I'm pretty sure in our hearts there's more of us that are saying, hmm, I guess maybe I do live like that a little bit. We know we don't have to earn God's love. We know we don't have to earn his favor. And yet, yet we oftentimes live as if that's not true. That, that somehow the life we want with Jesus is always just a little bit outside our reach because we, can, we can't quite get through one day without being faithful, right? Some of us feel we're not necessarily worthy of his love and forgiveness and his promises. But that's not the truth that the, the Bible teaches us. That's not what God has spoken into his word to give to us. The, the verse that our soul care group found comfort in that night was, was Romans 8.1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, because I trust that Jesus died for me to pay the penalty for my sins, uh, I, I trust that God sees me then as forgiven. He, he's, he's cleansed me of my sins. I am forgiven. He loves me. And I can walk with him. So, so we understand that obeying Jesus isn't how God measures us. My, my ability to obey him more or obey him less isn't how Jesus measures me and defines his love of me. Think about it for a moment. That, that it's not so much that God measures us by our obedience, but God has a plan to use our obedience to transform us, to be like him. When you, when you want to become a better golfer, I don't know if it, how many golfers we have here, but, but if you want to become a better golfer, you listen to and obey the instructions of the golf pro. Not because you want to make the golf pro love you more. And in fact, if you try to do that on the golf course, it's probably going to get awkward, a little bit weird. <laughs> you listen to the golf pro because you want to become a better golfer. You, you want to play golf like that golf pro plays golf, Right? When we learn to obey Jesus, we see our obedience as this vehicle through which he transforms us. He shapes our hearts and our minds and makes us more like him. Here's the thing. No matter how much I obey him or no matter how much I disobey him, 
He cannot love me more, and he cannot love me less. He loves me, and he loves me completely. That, that's a definition, I, I think it's by Philip Yancey, and, and I really love that definition of God's love. He could not love me more, and he could not love me less. See, this is what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 5 when he said that Christ died for the sinners, for the, for the ungodly. When we were yet sinners, he died for us. He didn't die for us because we were obedient. He died for us because he loved us when we were yet sinners. We didn't earn his love. We received it as a gift. See, God loves his people. He has a purpose for our lives as we walk with him. But it isn't to make us better rule followers. It's to shape us to be like him, to have a faith like his, to to have values like him, to have a heart like his, to walk with him in faith. Israel is given these instructions in our passage, which we're going to get to in a moment, because God desires for their life in the land to flourish with him, to be in relationship with him, to know God, to know his love for them, and to pass this faith on from generation to to generation. You know, Jesus told his, his followers something a little bit sim- similar in John chapter 10. He said this, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved, and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, there is no other way for us to receive God's love and forgiveness. Only through the door, which is Jesus Christ. Our obedience won't get us there. And so once we have that out of the way, we understand that our obedience has another purpose. It's to bring us life. Abundant life. A life that looks and sounds more like the life of Christ. So Jesus, Jesus is this word that he wants to impress on our hearts and our souls that, that we too might have this life and have it abundantly. See, I believe that, that abundant life is an all-encompassing embrace of God's love for us through Jesus Christ. It's a life where we become much more like Jesus Christ himself and much less like our old, insecure, and ashamed selves. Nothing else will satisfy our hearts. Nothing else will bring our souls contentment. And you know what? There's nothing more important for this next generation to hear from you. There is nothing more important for this next generation to hear than that Jesus Christ alone is the life that they long for. There are many things this next generation is facing in this day and age. And and a lot of it is because they're searching. They're searching for answers. and, And we know... We know that the only place they're going to receive those answers is through the life of Jesus Christ himself. So God's purpose in these instructions for the Israelites this morning is for them to to pass on from generation to generation the saving knowledge of who God is and what he has done. His purpose is not just to make better rule followers, but to multiply his faithfulness and and their trust in him from generation to generation. So I think our passage this morning, what we're going to look at now, is that our passage offers us wisdom and encouragement in what role that you and I can play in God's plan. It offers us two things, I think, that we can start to do today if we're not already doing them 
to make sure that we are being faithful to passing on the faith from generation to generation. The first thing we need to do is acknowledge that it starts with us. It starts with us. And what I mean by that is it doesn't start with us trying, beginning to reach out to them. I mean that it starts right here with us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls. I've used this analogy numerous times here before, so forgive me if you're tired of it. But, but whenever you fly with a small child... During the pre-flight check, they'll go through this sa- the safety checks, and they'll say that if you're flying with a small child, um, a flight attendant will approach, and in case of a, a, a loss of cabin pressure, oxygen mask will drop down on the ceiling. And what they tell you is not to secure the, the oxygen mask on your child first, but to secure the oxygen mask on yourself first. Once you've done that, then you can go ahead and secure the oxygen mask on the face of your little one. Now, this concept actually flies in the face of our culture. Now, if there are young ones in this room, I apologize. Or if they're listening online, please know that we love you. But I think we may have done you wrong a little bit. If there are young ones in this room, I want you to listen up. And more importantly, for the the elder generation, I want you to hear us. Because I hear of parents, I hear of caregivers who are on their last thread of sanity because of the number of things that they're doing for their kids, putting their kids first in everything, soccer games, baseball games, football games, uh, this, this extracurricular activity, that extracurricular activity, it's endless. They're doing too many things. And I'm saying this partially from a, a place of feeling a little bit guilty of this myself. Right? Uh, I, we love our kids. We want the best for our kids. We, we want to see them smile. We want to see them happy. We want to provide for their future. We want to do what's best. But this is where our priorities are a little out of order. Not that those things are wrong. It's not wrong to bring our child to a sports game or, or, or to invest them in learning a musical instrument or, or getting them involved in, in theatrical, um, uh, the theater arts. It's not wrong. But if we don't have them in the right priorities in our lives, then it becomes unhealthy. See, what we're going to learn this morning together is that the most helpful and loving thing that we can do to start or start to do for your child or for the child in the next generation is not to get them into the best schools or sports programs, but to fix your own oxygen mask first. See, when, when we rightly prioritize, we find that we get it all. When we put our own oxygen mask on first as a first priority, we have the oxygen and the health to help the child next to us get their oxygen mask on. If we, if we fix the oxygen mask of our own faith, if we work on our own faith, if we walk with Jesus, if we learn to trust him more, if we learn to understand who God is and what he's done for us first and foremost, then we'll be able to be equipped to pass on our faith to the next generation. Listen to the words uh, that the Lord shares through Moses in Deuteronomy 11, verse 18. He says, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Laying up uh, God's word on our hearts is, is the equivalent to putting your own oxygen mask on first. The word used here in the Hebrew carries the meaning of, of placement. 
In, in other words, God invites his people to, to place the word of God at the very center of their being, at the very core of who they are. To place his word in, in a place like that means that, that they're going to allow God's word to shape their lives. To, to, to allow God's word to determine what values matter most. To, to allow God's word to shape who they're becoming. Who they're trusting. Who they put their, their faith in. What they say. What they do. How they spend their time. Where their money goes. When God's word is at the center of our lives, we're fixing our own oxygen masks on our face that we're able to fix the oxygen mask on the faces of the next generation. Jesus explains this a little bit in the New Testament when he tells the story of the two builders. You, you may be familiar with this story. It's, it's found in Matthew chapter 7. It's toward the end uh, of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus spent time talking about the kingdom of, of God, which is, which is the promised land, by the way, for New Testament believers, those who have put their faith in Jesus, the promised land is that, is that land that God has preparing, is preparing us for, to spend eternity with him. And so after Jesus has been preaching a, a sermon on living in the kingdom of God, he tells the story of these two builders. One who's laid up Jesus' words in his heart, and one who's chosen to, to lay up Jesus' words somewhere else. <laughs> one builder builds the foundation of his home on a rock bed. This is a very sturdy and strong foundation and impacts how the, the, the house is built and shaped from the foundation up. You might be able to guess that in this story, Jesus equates this builder to one who listens to Jesus' words and builds their life on Jesus' words. The other builder that Jesus talks about, he's eager to build his home and builds it on sand, a foundation of sand. This is a person who, who maybe he's heard Jesus' teaching, but he considers it as one possible way you could live. But there are others. There are other options out there, other good ways that we could invest our lives and believe other things. So it's not necessarily the way, the truth in life, but it's a way. Yeah, maybe. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll believe some of it. I'll pick and choose what I want to believe. Well, as you can imagine, in the story that Jesus tells, a storm comes. And both buildings, both homes, endure the same storm. They go through the, the same weather. But only one home, only one builder, only one person endures. So the person who lays up the word of God on their heart is the person who's allowed the teaching of Jesus to become so central to their lives and, in, and such an important priority to them that as the storms of life hit, as the storms come, yeah, they're, they're battered, they're beaten, but they endure because their hope is in Jesus Christ, who stands outside the storm, ahead of them, preparing a place for them. The men in our Square One Men's Fellowship uh, talked a little bit about this this past Thursday. We've, we've taken a break for the summer, and we'll start up in the fall. So any men in here who are looking for a place to connect with other men, I'd highly encourage you to consider joining us on Thursday mornings this fall. And this Thursday, I asked them to kind of Think about this passage a little bit with me and, and give me some wisdom because I'm a young person. I, I probably have so much to learn about what this looks like. But for them, they're, they're wise, they're mature. They had a lot, of, a lot of things to share. For the men around the table, this idea of laying up God's word on their heart isn't just something that you know. It's not just a, a knowledge of the word of God, but it's embedded in your soul. It's who you've become. It, it, it's a lifestyle. 
drawing a picture of what this looks like, one, one gentleman said that he doesn't steal, not because it's against the law, but because it doesn't reflect who God is. And who this man is, is a reflection and a representation of who God is. Each of us are. We are representatives of God. When we're creating the image of God, this is what he's saying, when we're creating the image of God, we represent him to the world. And so we do, we do or we don't do things based on how well it, re- it reflects God. And this is who we become. You don't start building your home by building the roof first and, and hope that, that by the time you get to the foundation, it all fits in. No, you start from the foundation up. In the same way, God has designed us to be transformed from the inside out by laying up these words of his in our hearts. Verse 18 again says that, that we shall impress the words of God on our hearts and our souls and that we should bind them as a sign on our hands and frontals on our foreheads. Verse 20 tells us that we're told to write them on the door pro- doorposts of our homes and our gates. The Jews used these things called phylacteries and mezuzits. They were these little containers that you could bind to your hand or bind to your forehead or, or post on your door frames or on your gates. Now in these containers, they would actually write down the word of God and place them in the container. So Deuteronomy 6, the, which by the way, Deuteronomy 11 is kind of re, uh, reiterating or re-saying the words we find in Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, this prayer that the Hebrew people would pray together. They would put these words from Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11 inside these containers, and, and they're meant to be this reminder. They were assigned to people wearing them that when they saw the containers, they remembered God's word being put at the center of their being, that it was God's word that was shaping who they were becoming. The problem occurs when, when we see this as a, an opportunity to put a check mark in the box that says, yeah, I, I obeyed that rule, I'm good there. It's there, I'm all set. There's nothing left for me to do. The containers with the scriptures were meant to be an outward sign of an inward reality. I've heard Pastor Dave do this at weddings where he talks about the wedding band, or actually at baptisms, where he talks about a baptism being the symbol, an outward sign of an inward reality. And he reflects on how the wedding band is an outward sign of an inward reality. Now, when I take this ring off, it doesn't mean I love my wife any less. But when I see this ring, I remember my love for her. I remember my commitment to her. I remember her priority in my life. That's what these these boxes were meant to be. That's what binding the scriptures on your hand, to to bind them on your forehead, to post them on your your door frames and on your gates, is meant to be. But it's subtle. But do you notice the difference? One perspective is concerned about looking like we are doing the right things according to the word. The other perspective is looking to see the word transform them from the inside out. Jesus was well aware of this danger. He mentions, actually he speaks frequently of it in the New Testament when he he speaks against the Pharisees, the keepers of the law, and their hypocrisy. In fact, Jesus doesn't pull any punches in Matthew 23 when he says this to the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, living our lives from the outside in as the Pharisees did will not work. 
It, it may protect us for a little while from the awkwardness of people knowing where we actually are in the process of becoming more like Jesus. But in the end, it will all be revealed. We can try and keep up the charade on Sunday morning or throughout the week that, that we're good-looking Christians. But unless we let God do the difficult work in our hearts, there will not be lasting fruitfulness, a lasting transformation of our whole person. Consider the fruits of the Spirit for a moment. Paul says in Galatians 5, The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and against such things there is no law. So tell me, when was the last time you made yourself more patient? How'd that work out for you? When was the last time you said, you know, I'm going to wake up, I'm going to be more peaceful today? How far into your day did you get before you realized you can't truly be a more peaceful person simply because you said it without the work of God in your inner being? Now, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. I'll guess that you probably got as far as the on-ramp to I-95 on your commute to work. See, we may think we can look more loving or joyful or peaceful or pick any of the other fruits that Paul talks about. But the reality is that it's the Holy Spirit working inside of us that transforms and builds this fruit. Unless the Holy Spirit's allowed to work in your innermost being, we'll all just be like the Pharisees. We'll look like these whitewashed tombs on the outside that look great, but on the inside will be death and decay. So are you still thinking this morning about that person you have in mind? That person that, that you have, have the opportunity to influence, to impress with the faith of Jesus Christ. If you want them to know the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, the love of God, the beauty of God's love, the beauty of walking with Jesus in the faith, then you need to be prepared to go there first yourself. You need to put your own oxygen mask on first. It's God's desire for his promises and for his faithfulness to be passed along from generation to generation to generation through you and through your generation. But in order for that to happen, we need to acknowledge that it begins with us, transformed from the inside out. So here's a challenge for us this week. When we, when we gather before God's word this week, when you, when you sit down with the Bible, when you, when you spend about 15, 20 minutes in God's word, hopefully, before you do, sit down and pray. I want to encourage you to pray the words from James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 21. Make these, form these into a prayer. James says in, in chapter 1, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness, with humility, the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. Before you spend time in God's word this week, pray that God would put away and forgive you of all filthiness and wickedness. Understand that he knows it's there before you acknowledge it, just ask him to forgive it. And then pray that God would take this time to make your heart humble, to allow you to receive his word and plant on your heart, that it wouldn't just be something that's out of sight, out of mind when you get up 15, 20 minutes later and go on to your day, but that he would implant it in your heart, that it would change how you live, that it would transform you from the inside out. And then believe that the Holy Spirit's going to make it so. See, God desires to reach generation, the generation to come, and we need to acknowledge that he wants to start with us, that it begins with us. And so if he wants to begin with us and if he wants to work in us, well, then he's also going to work through us. Take, uh, consider these words from the psalmist in Psalm 78. 
He wrote, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings or, or, or hidden things from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the generations to come the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. See, God's story, his faithfulness, his, his promises, his plan is meant to be passed on from generation to generation. And not just the story of it, but the, the, the seed taking root in our hearts. Now, this may seem simple, but it's, it's not so easy. See, there's a sound that every relay runner hates to hear. It, it's the metal ping sound of the baton hitting the ground because the handoff from runner to runner failed. If you watched the most recent Summer Olympics, you probably remember the story of the women's relay team that was almost disqualified because they got hit by another runner during the handoff and distracted and caused the baton to drop. Now, from what I understand, every runner has a healthy fear of failing to make that handoff well. So I wonder for us this morning, do we have a healthy fear about handing off the baton of our faith to the next generation? Is there a, a, a healthy fear that, that, that there is this, this opportunity, this responsibility to pass on our faith to the next generation and a fear that we're not going to do it? Younger generation, don't, don't think that you can get off the, the, the uh, handle so easily. Because in that handoff, from one generation to the next, there's two parties. It's not simply sitting back and saying, all right, give me some more, feed me. I want to hear it. Come serve me. It's a matter of running, preparing yourself to receive that baton. So when it hits your hand, you can clamp down on it and run the race with endurance that God has given you. It takes two parties. What we're talking about here is a model of ministry. It's true both for the church and for each of us as individuals. The church is, is, is a community made up of individuals, and we all need to share that same model of intergenerational ministry, a love for the elder generation and a love for the younger generation, or the desire to make this handoff done right. Consider the words in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 19. Let's see if we can paint a picture of what this ministry might look like. In verse 19, we read this, You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in the house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. See, the picture that's painted for us here is one where the generations share in life together. They talk together when they sit in their house, when they walk along the way, when they lie down, when they get up. And this is a picture of one generation living their lives in Christ before another generation in such a way that, that this younger generation catches what's going on owns it, embraces it, and lives it out for themselves. But again, I think this sounds much more simple and easy than I think it really is. Now, I'm not sure if you know this, but if you want to make a, a young parent feel discouraged, ask them if they do family devotions. Ask them if they worship together as a family. See, I think for every parent who's tried family devotions, I'm confident that I could tell them how it ends more often than not. I imagine it ends in tears, and those tears aren't necessarily the tears of the children. It's oftentimes, well, maybe it's just my tears, actually. See, Tara and I have tried this from, from time to time in different ways, and it hasn't always gone well. 
But my encouragement to you today is if you're doing this or if you know someone who's doing this, give them the encouragement to not give up, to keep doing it. Try new things because it's a worthy pursuit. Recognize that, that impressing God's word on the heart of the next generation is valuable, is important, is necessary. And we're going to face discouragement along the way. But we need to encourage one another the value that it is. Grandparents, I can't tell you how much of an encouragement it would be for you, for, for a parent, to know that, that you're investing in your grandchildren in this way. That you're taking the time to, to maybe sing a song with them while you're driving down the road or, or, or reading a passage of scripture, sharing with them some of the favorite things you've read in God's word. But God's word spoken to us through Moses this morning isn't just meant for families. Family devotions and family worship are not the only way that we can pass on our faith to the next generation. So the church is like a family, and the relationships we share in the church are, are powerful ways for us to pass on the faith from generation to generation. Think about this. Consider, consider Paul and Timothy. Consider the relationship they had. Paul was writing to Timothy in his second letter to him and said this in, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, You then, my child, again, sees him as a child in the faith, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that's in Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. See, Paul saw Timothy as a child in the faith. Timothy wasn't his child by birth. Timothy, uh, Paul wasn't responsible to raise Timothy as his own. But Paul saw his responsibility to treat Timothy as a child in the faith. Because he was the person that God put in Paul's life that Paul might impress upon Timothy, to to impress upon Timothy's heart the things of God. Paul's role was to encourage the faith and the word of God to take root in Timothy's heart and then to challenge him to pass his faith on to others in the way Timothy observed Paul doing it. This is what it looks like to have this intergenerational ministry. I don't know if you realize this, but... But this is why we have the children in our services from time to time. You'll see it this summer when we're all together in one service and the children are there. There's a reason for that. There's a, there's a purpose in that. It isn't because we want them to hear how lovely we sing. Because trust me, if we were all to stop singing and, and Bruce and Rhonda were to turn my mic up during singing, we wouldn't hear a lovely sound. It's because we want them to see mature faith modeled before them. We, we want our, our children to see other children of God and followers of Jesus pouring out their hearts in praise. We, we want them to see and ask questions about how we celebrate the Lord's Supper. We, we want them to see men and women receiving the word of God read for them. We want them to know what the church looks like and sounds like when we, when we pray together, when we gather together, when we make God's word a priority in our week. We want our children to understand what it means to make God a priority in our lives Every day, and especially on Sundays when we gather as a faith community. So I want my children, I want Alex and Max and Eliza to see other men and women of faith who who I know worshiping God and pouring out their hearts before him. By the way, it's not uncommon that we'll go home for lunch after church and, and we'll be getting lunch ready and one of the kids will be at the table and they'll just start singing one of the songs we sang in worship in the morning. That's one of the sweetest moments for me. When I realize that it's not in one ear and out the other for my kids. See, this, this is something that we have an opportunity to do. 
to pass along to the next generation this gift that we've received from God. When we teach the younger generation by, by talking to them while we sit, while we stand, while we walk along the way, while we lie down or rise up, we aren't even necessarily using words, but living our lives before them. See, the church itself is a family, and we participate as members of a family. The Bible tells us that we are one church, and yet we are individually members of one another. When we commit to being a member of Trinity, we aren't committing just to having the opportunity to vote at the annual meeting. We're actually committing to a responsibility toward one another and toward the generations here at Trinity. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. See, it's, it's our responsibility that we would pour into the next generation, to pass on the faith to the next generation, to build one another up in the faith. This past week, we had Ted DeRamo, who runs our Higher Ground Ministry, come and visit a, a group of young men who gather every month uh, for prayer, to gather in God's Word, and for encouragement. Ted came and spoke to the group, and he shared with them what a man following Jesus lives like. He, he shared with them his own faith journey. As a result, these men were encouraged. Not only were they encouraged, but they were empowered to live their faith out here in this church and in their neighborhoods. Now, I could have said, in fact, I probably did say some of the same things that Ted was saying to these men. But it wouldn't have had the same impact. See, Ted was speaking from years of experience of walking in the faith. Ted spoke from the testimony of his own life. And as a result, he challenged these men to take hold of the baton and run their race with endurance. So, so can I just challenge us real briefly with this before we close? Can I challenge us to first and foremost secure your own oxygen mask in the faith? Spend time each day in God's word. Let it, let it envelope you in his truth. Let his word infuse who you are, not just as something for you to be doing, but who God wants to transform you in your inner being. Let it be a place of prayer. Pray that God's word would transform you. Trust that his Holy Spirit is doing that work in you of bearing the fruit that Paul talks about. Pray that he would transform you as you seek to, 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 to put on, secure your own oxygen mask. Secondly, I want to I encourage you just to pray as well for God to, to show you ways to impress your faith on the next generation. See, God has a purpose to multiply the generations of his people, to make them fruitful and leading people back to God through Jesus Christ. And he wants to work in you and in your generation. He wants to work through you and through your generation to pass off the baton to the next generation, the baton of faith. This past summer, as I mentioned, during the qualifying race for the finals, the U.S. women's 4 by 100 meter team dropped the baton and were disqualified. But they were given a second chance because the officials noted that another team interfered with their handoff. Well, do you know what they did with their second chance? They went on to the finals and they won gold. See, grace gives us another chance as well. God's grace gives us a chance to do it again. There's still time to influence the next generation. You can't sit there and say, well, my opportunity has passed. There's still time. Maybe you sense God's invitation to get involved in the teaching ministry and in, in the children's ministry or in the youth ministry. Great. Let us know. Talk to me. Talk to Pastor Chris. Talk to Donna downstairs. 
Maybe there's a young person in the church that you'd like to take out to lunch and get to know a little more or, or, or get involved with in their ministry here at church. Awesome. Do it. Make the determination today that you're going to make a step toward doing that. Young people, maybe there's a, a more mature person of faith that you've wanted to approach and ask out to lunch. Do it. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't wait for them to approach you. Go and do it. Take initiative. Get to know them. Listen to them. Observe their faith. Listen to how they've walked with Jesus Christ throughout their life. See, God has a purpose and a plan for the generations here at Trinity. His purpose is that our faith in him would multiply and spread from generation to generation as we live our lives before one another today, tomorrow, and for the years to come. So as I close our time in prayer, can, can it be our prayer together that God would be, be faithful to the generations here at Trinity and pass on the faith from generation to generation? Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you that this is not a pursuit that we're intended to do in our own strength and our own power. That we are intended to draw near to you first and foremost, to let you do that work in our hearts and through our hearts. But Lord, give us a vision and an understanding about how you want to work through us to pass on our faith to the next generation. To see the lives of many generations walking with you, trusting you, becoming more like you. Loving you, Lord. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that, that, that you desire to transform us through your word. And we ask most of all, not that my words would have been heard now, but Lord, that your word would take root in our hearts and our minds. Transform us from the inside out together this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's continue to worship the Lord as the ushers come forward and serve us in this morning's offerings.